Good evening, everybody. So we are looking at Philippians chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, and I really hope you do, open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to talk a lot about unity tonight. So let's look at the first four verses here as we dive right in. And don't worry, I thought of everyone. I brought a timer. Okay. I, I know, I, I taught two weeks ago on Wednesday and taught for 67 minutes. Um, I'm sorry, forgive me. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4 said, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection of mercy, fulfill my joy and be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish, ambitious, or conceit, but in the lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. You ever feel like your life is one giant balancing act? Anybody? I love the word balance because we live in such an insanely imbalanced world. I think it's awesome here that Paul begins by appealing to their common experience of Christ's comfort as a direct response to their common experience of suffering for their faith. We often forget the early Christian church, Philippians included, the early Christian church was heavily persecuted for what they believed in. You have to realize it didn't take long for them to no longer be seen as a sect of Judaism there was something altogether whole and different. And they were very persecuted, not just by the Roman church, but also by much of Judaism. So it was a very persecuted faith. And did you notice all of those little two-letter words as we were going through those couple verses? Did you notice all the if statements that Paul used? Just in the opening verse, it's just one verse. Therefore, if, there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And it is so important that we, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, have one mind. And it's not our mind, if you haven't picked up on it yet. You see, our fellowship will best come to us through a common medium. And the Apostle Paul was making a strong appeal to their common experience. Make no mistake about it. We were meant to walk together. One of my biggest problems with modern evangelical American Christianity, that's my nice word for it, is that it is highly subjective and overly individualistic. And let me tell you something, I've been to the Middle East and the Christians I encountered there were wholly like-minded and communal in their Christianity. They read the verses of the Bible and truly believe if one member hurts, the whole body hurts. What did Paul instruct? Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And no one thinks about it, but you know what? Most American Christians don't really do that. 
And it sounds like harsh condemnation, but stick with me. Yes, I see a lot of people in the church today who see someone sitting down and weeping, and they're pretty decent at that. They can sit down and, you know, mourn with someone and pat someone on the back and, you know, say, hey, I, I know you're in the thick of it. I'm praying for you. We love you here. But how many people do you see in the church today rejoice with someone who's rejoicing over, say, I don't know, a $40,000 raise in a better position? You see, most Christians are like, yay, oh, I'm so happy for you, Chris. He doesn't deserve it. It's like, what's the number one thing that most people jump to? It's not rejoicing with someone who's rejoicing, it's jealousy. It's jealousy. Well, in the same manner that you would weep with someone weeping, you are to rejoice with someone who is rejoicing. That's what it is to be part of a community of faith. We do not walk alone. I tell you, there's nothing worse. I pastored a church for 13 years, and I, you know, I saw a lot of people fall, and I always called them the same thing, Lone Ranger Christians. Lone Ranger Christians, they always get picked off the prairie first. Not second, not third, not last. First. First. Fundamental flaw when God comes to Cain and says, where is your brother? We all know, what does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. In a real way, in a real way, you are your brother and sister's keeper. Yeah, in a real way. We're gonna see it. But you know what? We were called to walk together in one mind in Christ. We we're called to love one another. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13, four through eight. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. See, this is why love is so supreme in a Christian community. Because as Peter said, we should love one another because love will cover over a multitude of sins. What does it look like for people of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different cultural norms to come together and learn how to love one another. I don't know if you figured it out, brothers and sisters, but let me tell you something. It's quite literally what I tell people is the secret to every relationship on the planet. And I mean friendships and I mean marriages. It is constantly, constantly, constantly reliving the gospel. That's what it is. Learning in the context to say, I have wronged you. I am sorry. Please forgive me. It's what it is. To live in community with one another is to relive the gospel overtly, over and over and over again. And we see it that this is Christ's heart. And this is why things go so badly in the church when we just don't listen to the instructions right? Someone in the church offends you or someone in the church does something to you that you perceive as an offense. 
It doesn't even have to be a defense. It's a perceived offense. And what do you do? You call five friends and say what a jerk they are. Ready? Not even leveling at anyone. Guilty as charged. Myself, I'm guilty of that. Been there, done that. But in Matthew 18, 15, Jesus said, if your brother offends you, go to him alone. Keep the matter between the two of you. And if your brother hears you, you have won him back. You see, you only bring one or two others in if your brother doesn't listen to you when you go to them one-on-one. Do you understand the sensitivity and how amazing that is in the context of intimate relationship? What a betrayal of trust it is if your brother should offend you, because let's face it, sometimes we offend people and we don't know we offended them. Yeah, when you teach like me, you do that a lot. Apparently I offend people all the time and I don't, I'm not even aware of it. It's okay, I, I'll say sorry, you can come find me later. But you offend someone, you don't even know it, and then they go and they, they blab it all over town and tell three and four other people. And then someone comes on the backside and you know, all of a sudden through a, a third party, you hear what a jerk you are. And you think to yourself, I didn't even know I had hurt someone's feelings. I didn't even know that I was being offensive. I didn't even know I had an apology to make. But truly, if someone would have come to me one-on-one, the matter could have been handled better. And I, I find that people do it all the time with pastors. I remind people that I'm no more holy than you. I remind people that I don't have a quick connect to the Holy Spirit. It's not as though I have the Ruach Hokadesh on my speed dial, all right? I don't have to play Holy Spirit for you. If you've got an issue with someone or someone's offended you, we have to deal with it Jesus style. We have to do what we're instructed to do. You don't go blab. You don't call, you don't phone a friend. I don't care how hurt your feelings are either. I don't care when it comes to this. I don't, I don't care. You do the right thing. You do the right thing. You live out the gospel. You do the right thing. You keep it between you and the person who has offended you. All right? And it's amazing because Jesus flipped the script and in Matthew 5 it says the other thing. It basically says if you know someone has something against you, don't even offer your gift at the altar. Leave it there. Go be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and make it. So it's either way, whether you are the offended or the offendee, it doesn't matter. Jesus covered it both times in the gospel according to Matthew. It is so germane that we keep close and intimate accounts with one another. Because I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, the worst thing to enter into the heart of any believer is bitterness. Because Bitterness never, ever begets anything other than more bitterness. It doesn't get better. It only gets worse. We should be like Paul. If there is any consolation, if there is any love and there is any mercy, be of one mind. What is the apostle's instruction in verse 3? Consider others higher than yourself. Let's move on to verses 5 through 11. Because this is where we're going to really, really slow down. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation 
taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is without fail one of the the deepest theological sections in the entire New Testament and probably more messed up and maligned than anything else in the New Testament. It is also very often just understood, not even just messed up, people just don't even understand it. And I hate to say it because... I'm in the camp of pastor. Many pastors do a pretty lousy job explaining it. If you understand this passage in its proper context, it could change our understanding of much of the New Testament writings, and it will certainly empower us for more godly living. This is often what is known as the kenosis theory. The kenosis theory holds that Jesus gave up some of his divine attributes while he was on earth as a man. The word, again, kenosis is taken from the verb kinoo, which, which can be translated as made or even empty. We find it in Philippians 2.7. It is often translated as emptied himself, or that's not the only English interpretation, or made himself of no reputation. That's usually what it states. Now, many, many people believe that according to this theory, Jesus Christ emptied himself of some of his divine attributes, such as omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. Omniscient is the God who knows everything. Omnipresent is God who is everywhere present. And omnipotent is the God who is almighty and all-powerful. And people in this camp, this what I call deep kenosis theory, basically all say, while Jesus was on earth as a man, he emptied himself of most of his divinity. Now, what they say is that this is a voluntary process, voluntary in nature. They say, this is kind of like a self-limiting thing. Jesus did this. He did it allegedly to fulfill his work of redemption. But I'm going to tell you this, this is completely and absolutely unheard of in 1,800 years of church history. There isn't a church father in the first 800 years of church history that even mildly suggested this. Again, no recognized teacher in the first 1,800 years of church history thought for a second that the phrase emptied himself in Philippians 2.7, meant that the Son of God actually gave up some of his divine attributes. Any doctrine of kenosis which states that Jesus Christ surrendered attributes at the incarnation is in direct conflict with scriptural evidence concerning his person during the incarnation. In short, let me level with you. God can't stop being God. Can't. There are several things that it is impossible for God, all of which we derive from the scriptures. It is impossible for God to lie. You know God can't lie? You want to know why? Because he's perfect. 
And he only speaks that which is the truth because in his own nature, he is holy and pure actuality. He is only the truth. God could never lie. That's the power to be free of sin. We can't help but lie. It's a total role reversal. We try so hard, but we still end up stumbling over our words anyway, don't we? God can't lie. God is immutable. He can't change who he is in his being. And God can never go out of existence. When the angel of the Lord appears to Moses, what is it? I am that I am. The tetragrammaton, the yud, the hey, the vuv, and the hey in Hebrew. And that means eternal self-conscious existence. Always existing, meaning to never go out of existence. Just as it boggles our mind, when did God come into existence? Never. He has always existed. There's never been any time when God has not existed. He has always existed, always. And in Genesis 1.1, that's the beginning of the space-time continuum. Matter as well, if you would. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No, God has always existed. And every single thing in this universe, which is a funny Latin word, uni meaning one, versus a spoken sentence. You ever notice that we live in a single spoken sentence? A universe? It's very, very, very theological. But people used to actually believe that God created the heavens and the earth. That's hotly contested today. That's a big, big thing. People don't want to believe that. Well, I think I believe that. Anything that even has existence finds its existence first in God. And that's why God can say, I am God. I am God alone. There is no God formed after me. I alone am God, and I share my glory with no one. That is why Jesus Christ can say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. God can't stop being God. It's ridiculous. You see, this new theosis theory has crept into the church through the higher criticism movement of the word of God. And you hear people saying these really unbelievably pithy things in their commentaries, right? The Lord Jesus, he, he did everything just as a man. Ooh, heart, blah, 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 blah. Offends every masculine bone in my body because it's so stupid. And it's completely incorrect. Like, I, I, I hate people. Like, Brian McLaren's view of Jesus irks me so badly. I may punch him in the throat should I ever meet him. So it's good that he lives in California. All right? Because, like, he's got Jesus, like, driving, like, a pink cabriolet. That's not even just, it's not just a chick car, but it's, like, it's a convertible. And the top's down, and Jesus' long, flowing blonde hair. Because you didn't know, but Jesus was from Norway. Right? His hair's flowing in the breeze, and he's like, hey, guys, we should all get, like, double mocha frappuccinos and talk about our feelings. And I just tell people, I hate to tell you, I don't know whose Jesus that is, but that is not the Jesus of the Bible. I don't know who that Jesus is, but I tell you right now, offended or not at me, that is not the Jesus of Nazareth. It's not the Jesus of history. It's not the Jesus of scripture. It's just not. Is there anything wrong about your feelings? No, there's nothing. I don't have a problem with that. Chris Figaro punches me in the chest on a regular basis and tells me he loves me. It hurts every time, and I believe him every time he does it. He's an ex-MMA fighter. I'm afraid to hit him back. I'd like to. 
I've thought about it at least twice. That little still small voice in the back of my mind that controls a lot of what I do says, don't do it. <laughs> the proper exercise of knowledge is wisdom. But it's foreign. It's a completely, absolutely foreign idea. And there's all kinds of things that couldn't be true. If this theory is true, then you've got massive problems with scripture. For example, there would be no way that Jesus could have said in John 10 30 that he and the father were one. If this theory were correct, never. Just like when he's with Philip, right? And Philip says, oh Lord, show us the father and it will be sufficient for us. And with actual disappointment, Jesus looks at him and says, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Couldn't say that. Or how can Colossians 2.9 boldly state that Christ is the fullness of deity in bodily form? Couldn't say that. You'd have a real problem. And according to Isaiah the prophet, the incarnate Jesus is Emmanuel, which literally means in Hebrew, God with us. And it's reiterated in Matthew 1.23 that that is who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. And that's what incarnate means, the infleshing of God. I like what St. Augustine said some 1,600 years ago. In the incarnation, there is no loss of deity. There is simply the addition of a human nature. Do you get that and understand that? In order for Jesus to save us, he took unto himself humanity, which means Jesus is the only human being ever and shall ever have two natures. Jesus has two natures. If most Christians read their Bible, they would eventually uncover that and realize that. But it's in there and it's deep. Jesus is fully God, always has been, always will be. And then to become the savior of all mankind, right around 3 BC, he forever wed his deity to humanity in the person of Christ. So anytime you ask questions about Jesus, it's always in his humanity or in his deity. And by the way, he's a being who's unable to be separated. You can't separate him. There's no two Christ. It's Christ. But he has two natures, one fully human, and he has one that is fully divine. And he's the only member of the Godhead who did that. The Father didn't do it. The Holy Spirit didn't do it. Only Jesus did it. Think I'm wrong? How did Jesus leave the earth? Visibly, bodily, and for all of his disciples to see in Acts 1.8. And as they stand there, mouths gaping open, an angel comes and says, men of Galilee, why do you stare into the sky? This same Jesus will return in the same manner. How did he go? Visibly, bodily. How is he coming back? Visibly, bodily. So he's coming back. So this theory came into being due to the fact that the 19th century saw the rise of many new scientific theories like evolution and radical criticism. And that's where the theory really comes from. It also brought an emphasis on the rediscovery of the real humanity of Jesus. And with it, an emphasis on his self-denial and self-emptying. But what do you end up with if you follow the kenosis theory ad absurdum? Stretch it out. 
to its, its, its most logical claim. It's a savior who is less than God. And in the words of a close friend of mine, oh, now you really have an issue. So what about the biblical view? I favor that one than higher critics from the 1850s. Philippians 2, very nature God. Paul's affirmation that Christ was in very nature God or in the form of God is extremely significant to the debate. Christ in his essential being is and always has been the eternal God, just as much as the Father and just as much as the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe as Trinitarian believers. That's what we believe. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are co-eternal, right? They're co-creators, and they're all God. It's the unity, of the, it's the unity and the mystery of the Trinity. But the word nature or form in the Koine Greek implies that which is intrinsic and essential to something. And when you talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, deity is absolutely intrinsic in Christ. It's who he is. He is God. Deity is essential in Christ. So nature or form means that our Lord in his pre-incarnate state possessed essential and intrinsic deity. The word nature expresses the sum total of those characteristic qualities which make a thing the precise thing that it really is. When used of God, the word refers to the sum of the characteristics which make the being we call God, specifically God, rather than some other being, say, an angel or a man. Angels and men are of different orders of being. Now watch. I hate the word human being because I think it's stupid. And I'll tell you why. Being actually in itself has the idea of eternal in it, being. We are not human beings, I hate to tell you. We are human becomings. Take a look around at all your friends. I want you to know in five years, they're not gonna look the same. And in 10, then it really gets worse. And then in 20, half the people you knew who had hair, now they're rocking a whole different hairdo. No, we're all changing. Being itself is perfection. There is only one being that actually possesses true being. Guess who it is? It's God. Everything else merely has being. God is being. We simply have it. But again, we're not getting away from the word that's been firmly grounded in English for over 800 years. No, becomings. We're in a state of flux and change. And the truth of the matter is we want to be that lump of clay that the Lord Almighty can put right back on the spinning wheel because he's the potter and we're the clay, amen? Change is a good thing in our lives. And as we yield to the work of the Spirit, he does that. He brings change. Think about it. Why do we even call, why do we even call God holy? And it's because he's holy other. There's no one like God. He's in a classification all his own. That's why he's so holy. And from him, all things were created and find their being. Nothing exists apart from him. Jesus clearly said he held everything together by the power of his word. Do you know how amazing that is? That means if Jesus says enough, you'll really see global warming. 
if Jesus says enough. He holds all things together by the power of his word. So the word being, as per in the phrase, being in very nature God is a present tense parsable in Greek. You could care less about that, but it means a lot. Because in the Greek, it carries the idea of continued existence as God. That's what's so important about it. Here the thought is that Jesus has always been in the form of God. There's never been a time when he hasn't been in the form of God. Eternally he has been. With the implication that he still is and shall always be almighty God. You see, this verse indicates that Jesus Christ in eternity past continually and forever existed in the form of almighty God while outwardly manifesting his divine attributes. This is the one who was born from the womb of Mary as a human being, all the while retaining his full deity and power. And if you read through the gospels, guess what you see? You see times when Jesus speaks out of his human nature and you see times when Jesus speaks out of his divine nature. Plenty of times. Jesus in his human nature said he had no idea when the timing was. No one knows the end of the timing, only the Father, not the holy angels, nor even the Son. Then there are other times when he tells his disciples, hey, why don't you lower your net on the other side of the boat? And they have so much fish they can't even drag it in. You see Jesus wake up, you know, on the bottom of the boat. And I love the Greek phrases. He tells the wind and waves to shut up like a yappy dog. Literally in the Greek, it's be muzzled. I had a grandmother who has a little chihuahua, and I hated that dog with all my heart. But she loved it like a child. I can't explain human nature. Oh, how I long to yell at that thing, be muzzled. But Jesus yelled it at the wind and the waves, and the Sea of Galilee calmed itself. And the men who had already seen him do many miracles said, who is this who even wind and wave obey? Still think Jesus emptied of himself of any of his divinity? St. Origen said, although Christ was God, he took flesh, and having been made man, he remained what he was, God. It says he took the form of a servant. Do you realize that's the entire proper kenosis theory? Made himself of no reputation? Follow it in your own Bibles. You have them open taking the form of a servant. Did Jesus not clearly reiterate that throughout the Gospels? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life and serve as a ransom for many. Now, verse 9 and 10 declare that that, that is why the God, God the Father has bestowed on Jesus the name above every other name because there's no one like him there's no one like him and that at his name every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because God did the unthinkable have you ever pondered it for a second why Christianity is so amazingly different than everything else on the planet I'll give it to you in a minute or less every other Religion on the planet is a system of works. Don't get upset with me if you're into a different system of works, but I'm going to tell you right now. Every other faith system on the planet outside of biblical Christianity is a system of works. 
And it's always a big set of do's. Do this, do this, do this, and make sure you don't do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, do this, do this. Matter of fact, we get the very word out of Latin. Raylan Gary means to make a reconnection. All right? The gods are angry. So quick, someone throw a virgin in the volcano so it'll stop going off. I don't know who ever thought of that. The Mayans would cut people's heads off because there hadn't been enough rain. Maybe the gods are angry and there's no rain, so let's cut some people's heads off. Oh, look, it's raining again. It only took 800 people murdered, but you know, maybe if you just waited long enough, it would rain again. I'm just certain. Everything outside of Christianity is a system of works. Biblical Christianity is the only system of grace. Every other system says, do this, do this, do this, do this, and have favor again with God. You know what Christianity says? Done. Christianity says done. Jesus hung on a cross and said, it is finished. Meaning that he had literally done everything that he came to do. All the messianic prophecies, and there's lots of them, all of them totally fulfilled in his sacrifice of love. Everything else says do, Christianity says done. And that's why it's the only system of grace. And it is at the name of Jesus Christ that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And some people are going to do it with exuberant joy. And some people are going to do it gritting through their teeth. You're going to be on your knees one day anyway confessing he is Lord. I tell people, do it with joy. Don't do it with regret. I'm convinced the fires of hell are not the worst thing about hell. It's not. Not even close. It couldn't be close. It's truth learned too late. That's going to be the worst thing about hell for so many people. Let's pick up verse 12 through 16. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Here's a phrase that freaks out a huge portion of the church today. It spun a lot of people out of control, but again, only because I think it is often not fully quoted. People love to, I don't know why, when did we learn to be so inept at speaking English? It's like, is that the whole verse? Work out your own salvation. Work out your salvation with, with fear and trembling. It's like, you're still not there, gang. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You've got to quote all of it. It's not a complete thought without the whole verse. Our salvation is something that God has done for us. Our sanctification is something God is doing in us. Our ultimate glorification is something that God will bring about for us. I hate to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's not about us. 
It never has been. It's always been about him. The work of Christ on the cross was only the beginning of the work of God for humanity. It wasn't the end. It was just the beginning. Just the beginning. So many verses just completely taken out of context and not really mind, you know, not really thought upon deeply. Oh, the things that God has for those who love him. Everyone's like, yeah, heaven's out of this world. No, that verse is about life now for those who love God. Yes, we're all going to enjoy heaven together and worship Christ. But what about the things that God has for his children right now? Why do we think so smallly on Christ? Why do we sell God so amazingly short? It's just mind-boggling. The rich provision of redemption provided for us is only the start. It's the start. The application of that redemption on the individual is something only God can do in us. You know what more Christians simply need to learn to do? It's yield. Oh, the power in yielding. You know, it's that little triangle sign. It means that when you pull up to it, you should actually stop and the other car should go. I know New Jerseyans have a very hard concept with that. They think it means cut off the car in front of you. But I want to instruct you today in all things biblical and vehicular. When you come to a yield sign, it means stop and let someone else go. To properly yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we give up our own self-willed, nonsensical attitudes and we say, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And you let the Lord do it. It is the simple matter of abiding in Christ. And it's not hard to get your head around. You either are abiding or you are not. It's not a gray area. It's one or the other. You can't kind of be in the vine and not kind of be in the vine. No, you're in the vine or you're not in the vine. It's, it's one or the other. You see, what we're after is the mind of Christ. That's what Paul's driving home here the mind of Christ. God's method using the work of Jesus as the basis and his example as the pattern is to simply reproduce in the life of the Christian the mind of Christ. What was the mind of Christ? I mean, it's clear it's in the passage. He didn't think equality with God was something to be groped and grasped at. It was something he already had. And yet, what did Jesus do? It was just in the passage, just, we just looked at it. He took the form of a servant. The mind of Christ is to serve. It's to serve. Paul encouraged the Philippian believers to move on in their spiritual maturity without grumbling and complaining. Philippians 2.14 when we were homeschooling Jenna as a baby, she loved to grumble and dispute. Linda used to make her sing a song. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Philippians 2.14. Now you all know it. Uh, she still knows Philippians 2.14 by heart. Now she's 16. So it had some instructive discipline, and it was really good to help her memorize scripture, and we still sing the song. And she's 16. Why? does Paul want the Philippians to stop disputing and grumbling and complaining that they might shine as lights in the world? You know, there's nothing fun 
about a fuzzy light. You ever, get a, you ever get a flashlight, you pull one out of the drawer, and you now realize you probably left it on for like two days? How bright is the light? It's not so bueno, right? You're like, this is garbage. I can barely see down the dark alley, you know? There could be a cougar at the end of the alley. I would never say it. You want light by nature to illuminate. In Matthew 5, 14, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. The life of the believer should shine to give light to all. In like fashion, Jesus said another similar thing. He said, no one lights a lamp and slides it under a bed. Now I know no one in here thinks that's hysterical, but I can tell you Jesus was absolutely that's a good-natured ribbing. In Jesus' day, a bed was, constricted, was completely constructed of straw. So if you lit an oil lamp and slid it under your bed, your bed would be totally in a ball of fire within three minutes, completely and absolutely engulfed. You can't put an, an oil lamp under a straw bread, you know? That's not what you do. And everyone says, Jesus wasn't that funny. Jesus was hysterical. I can't wait. I think Jesus is going to give us some serious wonderful theological comedy in heaven. I just can't wait for it. Because he said other funny things too. He said, no, no one does that. Instead, you put it up on a stand and it gives light to the entire house. Isn't that the funny thing about light? The higher you lift it, the more it illuminates everything around it. Well, Jesus said, we're a city set on a, on a hill. You can see a city set on a hill that's lit up at night from very far away. And that's what Christ wants, that we would not be fuzzy lights, but that we would be bright. I like what Gordon Fee says in his commentary, just want to quote Dr. Fee and not take credit for him. He said, complaining and arguing are the sins that breed disunity and thus were blurring the effect of the gospel in Philippi. We are to do everything without indulging these attitudes, which reflect selfish, ambitious, and vain conceit rather than the humility that puts the concerns of others ahead of one's own. Again, what did Paul say in Philippians 2.3? Esteem others more highly than yourself. We can't do that, brothers and sisters, when we're constantly grumbling and complaining. Verses 17 and 18, Paul says, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Is that amazing? Do you find that? Like, that's amazing. Paul was glad to be sacrificed. So long as the Philippian Christians were growing in the knowledge of Jesus, and maturing in their faith. If these things were taking place, then Paul says he is happy to be poured out for them. And his exhortation to these same believers is that they too be glad and rejoice with Paul in his sufferings. You see, this is what we like to call the blessedness of brokenness. The blessedness of brokenness is something amazingly foreign to much of the Western church here in the United States. Because we have entire movements who say, if you're sick, you're in sin. 
If you're not driving a Mercedes Benz and, you know, you know, carrying around a, a wallet that's so thick you can barely get it in your pocket. See, I can get mine in real easy. Right, right there. I watched a Pentecostal preacher one time in the 90s say, you know what the problem is? No, you people got any faith. This is how you have faith. You say, now listen here, big fat wallet. I said, listen here, big fat wallet. And I, I actually found a receipt from something I owed to another person in it. And so my debt grew, but my bank account didn't. So I don't think yelling, now listen here, big fat wallet, is how one gets a big fat wallet. I would imagine robbing a congregation out of their money in the hopes that they one day would get rich too. That would be a way to get a big fat, I don't know, $3.5 million house in Malibu. It's bad theology upon bad theology upon bad theology. All right? All of the apostles, save one, went to the most horrific martyrdoms ever. They did things to some of the apostles I won't even go into detail with on you. Barnabas, who was the traveling companion of Paul, they pan-fried him in the Colosseum for entertainment. You heard me correctly. Pan-fried him like sausage on a giant skillet over an open flame. They skinned another one of the apostles alive and let him die from bacterial infection, which is a slow and gruesome death. Blessed? Did the early church sound like mega, mega blessed financially? No, they were mega blessed spiritually. When we are weak, the word of God says we are strong. Because when we're weak, the truth of the matter is we have let go of ourselves. Too many people in the church today trust far too much on this and this. The strength of their own hands and the power of their own keen intellect. God needs neither. James 1 verses 2 through 4 say, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's a, great, that's a great verse for all of us to meditate upon. Maybe if something has befallen you, God is trying to teach you something. Verses 19 through 24. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character. That as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. This is where Timothy is commended to the Philippians. And it's super easy to skip over these last verses and say, let's just break into small groups, but we're not going to do that. True friendship, and I want you to hear me, my friends. True friendship, especially between Christians, can have a very fragile side. On one hand, one of the reasons for friendship is personal. It's the need to have someone close to whom we can have the sharing of joy and sorrows and everyday events, camaraderie. We are fellowship beings. This is how God has made us. 
For crying out loud, the first thing that's not good in all of human history is that man should be alone in the garden. Well, that should show you we are created one for another. However, on the other hand, the goal of all true Christian friendship is growth in Christ on the part of both parties. And I'm going to share with you that's the fragile part. How to be gently honest with a friend without jeopardizing the relationship. But I will tell you right now, as Christ, as our God, true love always confronts. Hypocrisy will always make an excuse. True love will always confront. Proverbs 27, verses 3 through 7 say, A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent. But who is able to stand before jealousy? Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faith for all the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You can really trust someone who really loves you to tell you absolutely the truth. And when you're being an idiot, and when you're being self-willed, and when you're being sinful, and when you're being anything but diligent for Christ, it is the best. It's called tough love. I think we've forgotten about it today. But I'm telling you, we need to get back to it. One more, Jude, chapter one, since it only has one chapter, verses 20 through 23. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but on others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. That means you need to actually exercise biblical wisdom on how you deal with people. You have to make a distinction, just like the verse says. But on some people, they're so in love with the world and in such a dangerous place, you have to save with fear. Look at the verse, save with fear pulling them out of the fire. You know what people don't realize? It is a true friend who would sacrifice their own life coming into the fire to get you. That is selfless, sacrificial love. That's the kind of love Christ is calling us to because that's the kind of love Christ loved us with. And certainly last but not least, verses 25 Verses 25 through 30. Yet I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick, almost unto death, but God had mercies on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because of the work of Christ. He came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. Paul considered it necessary to send him. 
the age the apostle before sending Timothy was sending Epaphroditus first. He was going to send Timothy. He is sending Epaphroditus. There are three special relationships here mentioned by Paul. I want to briefly look at them because I think they're all amazing. He says, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. My brother speaks of the relationship of closeness. We know that Epaphroditus was not Paul's real brother. He was his brother in the faith. He was a fellow worker. That speaks of a job to be done with each other. Serious camaraderie. And then he said, fellow soldier. Speaking of a battle that was to be fought together. There's nothing like being in the trenches with another believer doing the work of the ministry. It will bind two human hearts together in no other way that I know. But why did Paul send Epaphroditus before Timothy? Well, it doesn't say specifically in our text. However, I think we can imply it was because of friendship. Friendship. In Philippians 2.6, it tells us plainly that Epaphroditus was longing for you all, all you Philippians, and was distressed because he had heard he was sick. I apologize for the typo. That's verse 26. 226, not six. As I joked around with Chris before, you can always tell they're my slides because you can always find a typo. This is, this is the love of friendship. We find out in Philippians 14 that Epaphroditus was the one who delivered the gift to the Philippians unto Paul, and it is him, it's Epaphroditus who brought the letter of Paul to the Philippian church. He's the one who brought the letter. He was from Philippi. Verse 25 states that, again, he was your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. He is longing to see his own fellow countrymen. And he was distressed that they were distressed because they heard he was sick. This is the close, loving bonds that we have. I tell people, my closest friendships are in the church, not outside of the church. I have people in the church who are much closer to me than my own siblings in my own familial lines. Because there's something amazing about what God can do. In short, Epaphroditus was a faithful servant. Paul said flat out, he wasn't so concerned about himself. You know what he was concerned about? You. You see, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus were three very different individuals when you think about it. Paul, the bold, fearless leader. Timothy, with his quiet, devoted assistant. He was very timid, not really outspoken and bold. And then you have Epaphroditus, a diligent, behind-the-scenes worker with a heart for people. Yet all three manifested the most important characteristic of a godly leader, a life worth imitating because all of these men imitated the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave it all 